Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the DeSario Chair of Strategic Intelligence here at the U.S. Army War College. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today, I'm joined in the virtual studio by Dr. Amy Ziegard. Dr. Ziegard is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, a professor of political science, past co-director of Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and has been featured in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. She has previously served as a national security analyst for CNN, MSNBC, Fox News Channel, and National Public Radio. In addition to her new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, she has contributed other seminal works to the intelligence literature, including Flawed by Design, The Evolution of the CIA, JCS, and NSC, and Spying Blind, The CIA, the FBI, and the Origins of 9-11. Amy is a pioneer of academic on writing on intelligence. Welcome, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Well, Jen, it's such a delight to be with you. So let's start out. Um, let's start a conversation out on your new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. By the way, you get extra credit for having great titles. <laughs> what will the public find surprising about this book? Well, let me just first say, uh, I didn't come up with the title. I want to thank the fine folks at Foreign Affairs who did. Um, I, I think, you know, what, what will the public find surprising? I think is that the myths that they've grown up with from watching spy-themed entertainment don't capture a lot of realities about intelligence. So for example, in particular, as you know well, Jen, because you're an expert in this field, most intelligence is uh, derived from things that, are pub- that aren't secret, right? So 80% of a typical intelligence report comes from open source intelligence or publicly available information. So intelligence isn't just secrets and intelligence isn't just rogue agents running wild, which is what we see in the movies and on television. So I think the public will be surprised to know that. And one of the things I'm really proud of in this book is I interview a number of intelligence officials about what it's like to be them. When did they tell their kids what they did and how did they react and what their ethical challenges were? So I think they'll be surprised to to understand and, and learn about the real world of intelligence officers. So conversely, what will the intelligence community find surprising? You know, that's a great question. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. What I suspect they will find surprising is just the extent to which open source intelligence capabilities are transforming the business in which they operate. So whether it's nuclear threats uh, or uh, counterterrorism, Open source intelligence has become much more powerful than it used to be. Anybody with an internet connection and a cell phone now can collect and analyze intelligence. And that's really, I think, transforming every aspect of the intelligence enterprise. And given our environment here with the U.S. Army War College, how's the military going to respond to this, do you think? Is there anything particular in this book for them? I would like to think there is. I'll let them be the judge of that. I think one of the things that I found in doing the research for this book is there's a good news, bad news story post 9-11. The 
integration of intelligence and military operations has really dramatically improved our counterterrorism capabilities. We saw this just this uh, this past week uh, with the takedown of the leader of ISIS. So, but the the flip side of that is that our intelligence community has been now hardwired for the global war on terrorism, and it has to adapt again because the threat landscape, as you know, never sleeps. And so just when we've gotten really good at counterterrorism, now we have to confront a much wider array of threats, including China and other aspects of great power competition. So that military intelligence integration served a purpose but the more that the CIA in particular is devoting resources to uh, military coordination and, and support, the less it can do its primary mission, which is preventing strategic surprise. And as I often say, Jen, and, and you know this well, military officers are trained to be hunters. Intelligence officers are trained to be gatherers. Big difference. And in a world where we can't tell those two functions apart, it's a world where the CIA doesn't have enough focus on its primary mission. So you lay out a series of, of challenges and threats in your book. You're very comprehensive. Um, I just wanted to touch upon two. I believe they're related. One is AI, artificial intelligence, and the fact that the agencies across the community are drowning in data. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, so all of us are drowning in data. By one estimate, the amount of data on Earth is doubling every two years. It's just astounding. More people on Earth today have cell phones than running water. So, And all that connectivity means that there's just that much more data for us to ingest. And so for analysts inside the IC... It's a huge challenge. You know, as you know, intelligence is about finding needles in haystacks and generating insight from those needles. Well, now those haystacks are growing out of control. And so one of the things that I found, and, and big thanks to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which did a task force, I was a member of this uh, commission looking at artificial intelligence and the future of intelligence. And we found that analysts really need to harness technologies like AI in order to generate that insight today. So for example, an algorithm is really good at pattern recognition, can track down surface-to-air missile sites in China by pouring over thousands and thousands of images. And they can do it much faster than a human can. And so by incorporating AI, uh, the intelligence community can free up human analysts to do what humans do best, things like divining what are the intentions of Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un. Do you worry about the human piece of this getting taken out of the picture if we rely heavily on artificial intelligence? I think the key is to realize that the best use of AI is to augment human analysis, to work hand in hand with the human analyst. AI can do the tasks that take a lot of time for human analysts to do and can then enable humans to do a better job at higher level thinking. There's no machine that's going to replace a human in the intelligence community, but the machines can absolutely help humans check their assumptions, look at competitive analysis, uh, flag information that they might not otherwise see, and generally do their jobs better. Just moving on to, to another question here um, that I think affects the whole community. So you cite a lack of resources, priorities, and organization, or problematic organization that plagued intelligence agencies pre-9-11. And I know you've based quite a bit of your work on this, your excellent work. Um, and you say that this is repeating itself today. What can be done? What should current intelligence priorities be? 
It's such a hard challenge because the threat landscape is so much more complex and it's changing so much faster than it did during the Cold War. You know, as we think back in the Cold War, the top threat was easy to see. It was the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union. And every challenge was looked through the lens of what would Moscow think? Today, we have failed states and rising states. We have non-state actors, transnational threats, and they're moving at the speed of networks, not the speed of bureaucracy. So this is an incredibly complex landscape. And I think that temporal dimension, Jen, how fast it's moving is particularly vexing. So what do we do to triage in this landscape? At least in my mind, I think, you know, there are threats and there are threats, and we need to be thinking about where threat vectors converge. And for me, they converge on four major players. I call them the big four. And they're not going to be surprising to you. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Now, why? There are four different vectors that concentrate in those four countries. All four of them are sophisticated cyber adversaries, right? All four of them. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Cyber capabilities, number one. Number two. All four of those countries either have nuclear weapons or want nuclear weapons. So there's a top rung of that escalation ladder that should be really concerning to us. Number three, all four of those actors, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, pose territorial threats of the old-fashioned kind in their neighborhood, right? We think about China and Taiwan, China in the South China Sea, Russia right now massing troops on the Ukrainian border, Iran and its neighborhood, and North Korea obviously threatening the South. And then fourth and finally, all four of those countries seek to disrupt the international order, flout international norms, remake the international order in a way that doesn't uh, follow universal ideas of human rights, democratic values, free trade, free peoples, free ideas. So all those four things come together, nuclear, cyber, territory, and international order in just those four countries. So I think if I were to triage an intelligence, I'd really focus on those four. What resources should be focused on those four? Well, I think it's really interesting that uh, CIA Director Burns stood up a China mission center in the agency recently. So you and I are both organization junkies. Organizations uh, are crucial for deploying resources against priorities. So what you focus your organization on is what's going to get uh, the priority. So I think what the first step is, are we organizationally aligned for the threat landscape? And we see improvements on that dimension. Not only did the CIA stand up this China Mission Center, but it's focused much more centrally on technology. But we need more of that focus across the IC. And we need that focus to be replicated with Congress as well, because the oversight committees are still very disjointed when it comes to national security. Just to go back to the organization um, aspect of this, which of course we are very interested in that that uh, particular approach. I found it interesting when Director Burns stated he was setting up this mission center and focusing, refocusing, and 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 undoing. One could argue some of the reforms after nine eleven. Do you think this marks a distinct step away from counterterrorism in the intelligence community? I think it has to. You know, I always think back to something a. Former senior intelligence official told me shortly after 9-11, I never forgot it. He said to me, my, his greatest worry was, by the time we master the Al-Qaeda problem, will Al-Qaeda be the problem? And he was right. 
So the threat landscape never sleeps. Counterterrorism is still an important mission, but it's not the most important mission like it used to be. So you you touched upon congressional oversight and intelligence, which is an interest to both of ours. Um, can you touch upon the weaknesses of current oversight? Is, is it keeping up, as you as you mentioned? How can it change? Well, how much time do we have for you and me to talk about congressional oversight and the weaknesses of oversight? We could do a whole other show on this. I'll try to be brief, but you may have to restrain me, Jen. Oversight, I think, as you know well, and you've done such great work in this area, the dominant narrative of congressional oversight is it depends on who's in charge, that it's up and down depending on which party's in power, who's in the White House, and who leads the committees. And I find a very different pattern, which is that oversight is almost always suboptimal. It's almost always struggling. It's almost always insufficient. And the reason has to do with old-fashioned incentives and institutions. So congressional oversight of intelligence, as you know well in your work, is an election loser. Members of Congress don't get elected for dealing with the nitty-gritty aspects of intelligence. In fact, they don't get rewarded at all. They can't even talk about what they do to the voters back home. There's also no interest group environment that gives them information or campaign donations or incentives to focus on intelligence. There's no geography that favors a focus on intelligence. You know, there's, there are always people from farm states that care a lot about the farm bill every year and they're experts in agriculture. There's no farm state equivalent for intelligence. And so it shouldn't surprise us that most members of the House and the Senate do a very poor job of doing their homework when it comes to intelligence oversight. None of the incentives are there for them to devote the time and attention to develop expertise and really partner with the intelligence community to make sure that they're effective as well as accountable. And of course, there are complications with partnering with the intelligence community too, because then you can walk into situations of capture. So how do you learn enough about intelligence to be an effective overseer and keep your distance and objective oversight? Which leads me into the question that I think imbues a lot of discussion of oversight, which is partisanship. What is your feeling about this administration and oversight and the transition from what I think we could argue is a hyper-politicized environment under the Trump administration when it comes to oversight? So why don't we take that in two parts, the capture part and then the politicization part. You know, the capture part, that was the rationale for having term limits on the oversight committees when they were first created in the 1970s. We didn't want our overseers to be too cozy with the secret agencies they were supposed to oversee. But by that logic, we should have term limits on every congressional committee so that they don't get captured by the organizations they're supposed to oversee. There are no term limits on the armed services committees, but there's the same risk of capture there. And so what I think we found is actually the risk of capture has has led to institutional mechanisms that lead to other problems, namely on the House side, as you know, these term limits on the House Intelligence Committee are pretty unusual, and they limit the development of on-the-job expertise. Just when members on the committee learn the acronyms of all 18 agencies in the intelligence community and what they mean, they have to get off the committee. And if you don't have expertise, you can't ask good questions. And if you can't ask good questions, you can't do your job of overseeing. So yes, there was the risk of capture back in the 70s, but the risk of inexperience and a lack of expertise, I think, is a much greater risk today than the risk of capture. As technology speeds up, as we keep saying, do you think it will be harder to, to, to maintain oversight? 
I think it is getting harder. You know, I actually counted the number of engineers in Congress today, and it's something, if I recall correctly, I think there are 32 engineers in Congress and more than 200 lawyers. Not that there's anything wrong with being a lawyer, but with so many technologies today, you have to have people that understand the essence of what the technology can do, what it can't do um, in order to make really good policy. And so what we have is members of Congress who really don't know technology and they're struggling to understand the implications. And you can see this with technology hearings with uh, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, for example, where the questions were just astoundingly bad. And former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter said, I only wish members of Congress asked me questions like that on issues of national security. It was really a shocking level of misunderstanding and lack of understanding of the basics of how technology works. But I want to come back because I know you asked me about politicization earlier, and that's such an important issue. I don't want to leave that hanging. You know, there really was a period in the Trump administration of unprecedented politicization of intelligence. The president, and I try to be a nonpartisan equal opportunity critic, but I became really concerned about how the president denigrated intelligence, assumed it was political, talked about it as being a partisan function, treated it like the marketing department. And that really undermines the credibility of our intelligence agencies. They have to be apolitical. They have to serve every president regardless of party. And the more that that credibility is undermined by the chief customer of intelligence, the more damaging it is for successive administrations. So along these lines, linking oversight, accountability, openness to the public once again, why do you think it's important for the American public to have an educated understanding of intelligence and how it works? I think there are really two reasons, Jen. One is basic civics, right? Secret agencies operating in a democracy have to have accountability, and the public needs to understand the basics of what they do. Again, to hold members of Congress accountable, too. If voters care about intelligence, members of Congress care about intelligence. So that's reason number one why I think it's really important for people to understand how this world works and why I wrote the book and why I'm now going to teach a class about it at Stanford. But the second reason is more members of the public who don't have security clearances and don't work in SCIFs need intelligence for their own lives and for the national security of the country. So we see voters need intelligence about foreign election interference. Tech leaders need intelligence about cyber threats coming their way on their platforms that are affecting our country. Critical infrastructure leaders in the financial services sector, in the power sector, in the water sector, they need intelligence too. So the intelligence community has to get out of the mindset that they only produce for the classified realm. Intelligence is now for many decision makers in living rooms, not just the situation room. Along these lines, do you think there's a trust deficit when it comes to the intelligence community? I think there is a trust deficit and it's getting better. There is some good news in all of this. So I think Snowden was a real low point for the intelligence community and the trust deficit, both with Silicon Valley, where I'm sitting, and with the general public. There was a sense that the intelligence community was doing some things that 
really concerned a lot of people. And others in the intelligence community have spoken out about this. I think it was Mike Hayden, former NSA and CIA director, who said, from a political perspective, we should have been more public earlier about the NSA's uh, surveillance programs after 9-11. If we had been more forthcoming with the public earlier, it would have been a lot better for everybody involved. And I think Hayden's right about that. So the trust deficit in the in the wake of the Snowden revelations was real. And I'll just share a, a quick anecdote. A year after Snowden, I created with my colleague Herb Lynn here at Stanford, a congressional cyber boot camp. We brought congressional staffers of both parties out to the Valley to try to educate them about cybersecurity. And we went to a major tech company and a senior executive at that tech company told these congressional staffers, I think of you, he pointed at them, I think of you just like I do the People's Liberation Army of China. You are trying to access and penetrate my networks just like they are, and I have to keep you out. It was a jaw-dropping moment where staffers ran outside and started calling back to Washington. It really sent home to me this trust deficit moment between the intelligence community and the Valley. So turning our attention just a little bit back to the military that we've touched upon a little bit throughout the podcast, um, can you speak to, to our military audience out there and explain how intelligence is important for what they do, for their operations and for, for strategy formulation, for the big picture? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I understand that intelligence is really important to support warriors on the battlefield. That's one crucial role that intelligence plays. But intelligence also keeps warriors off the battlefield in the first place. That's the strategic function of intelligence. So at its most basic, as I'm sure your listeners know, intelligence is designed to give policymakers decision advantage. And that decision advantage could be knowing what's coming down the pipeline 10 years from now, 10 months from now, 10 days from now, or 10 hours from now. And so that strategic piece, that intelligence role in anticipating strategic surprise to prevent it, to keep American soldiers out of harm's way, that piece doesn't usually get the resources and attention that it deserves because the urgency of the moment often crowds out thinking further about the future. So there's always a tactical tilt of intelligence and intelligence leaders have to work hard to make sure that there's time and resource uh, dedication to that longer term over the horizon strategic picture. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I've always considered you, I think we all consider you a pioneer in this field of really applying especially political science principles to these issues of intelligence, policy, security. Um, the study of intelligence is, is complicated. I think we both can agree on that. Um, can you just discuss for the, the academic audience out there, can you discuss how it is unique and complicated? Well, let me just say first, it's it's nice slash a little disconcerting to be called a pioneer because it means I'm just really old. So thanks for that. <laughs> In terms of what makes this field so hard, and you've lived this reality too, for other academics, data is plentiful. If you're a Congress scholar, you have loads of unclassified data at your fingertips. You know who is a member of Congress. You know the roll call votes. You can look at polls about election contests going back decades. So the challenge of getting data is not nearly as intense and difficult in other areas as it is in intelligence. In intelligence, if you're an academic, you can only work with the data that the intelligence community lets you have. And they decide when to declassify it 
on their timeline, not yours. And so from a career perspective, there's a reason why so few academics study intelligence, because who would bet their tenure clock on the idea that they're going to get data declassified from the intelligence community anytime soon? It's a very challenging field uh, to do research in. But that said, it's a really important and wonderful field to do research in. And there's more in the declassified domain than you might think if you read the footnotes closely uh, and are dogged enough about hunting down documents. I think excellent points. I think there's also a piece of this that we're heavily reliant on individuals within the community to share with us. And I think that there can be sometimes a tension between these relationships and our academic objectivity. How do we, what is our responsibility to convey this information and these perspectives in a, in a critical objective way? Do you have that problem? Do you feel that that's a problem? I think about that all the time. I think about, have I gotten too close to the intelligence agencies I'm doing research on? Have I gotten too close to the people on the inside that I talk to, especially given how much I admire their dedication to our country? But I have to have that outsider's view to ask the difficult questions, to come to the unflattering conclusions. And I think that's really important to bring that outsider's perspective in because it brings a fresh pair of eyes, I hope, to the challenges that our intelligence agencies face. And so I've had a number of people over the years from inside the intelligence community get pretty mad about the things that I've written. And then I've had others that say, you know, I know you're trying to do this from a place of love, and I hope they think that that's true. <laughs> but I think a lot about how do I maintain my objectivity? How do I not overly criticize agencies if they've been really difficult to work with? I mean, I had to hire a First Amendment lawyer at one point because of the FBI and its intransigence and, and how it was dealing with me when I was doing research about 9-11. But I don't want to let that color the analytic conclusions I make about the Bureau. So I try to be very self-reflective about both being overly critical or not being critical enough. It's, it's complicated, I've always found. It's our own kind of capture or it can be. And um, I really respect your approach to this. It's really helped a lot of us as we proceed and follow in your footsteps. I'd be curious to know, Jen, how you think about that very same issue. You've had to confront this throughout your career too. How do you think about capture and independence? Uh, very, very similarly to you. I, I feel a responsibility if I'm going to write academic analytical work to be as objective as possible and to be as balanced as possible. On the other hand, I um, I'm also have a clearance and there's that issue. Um, but the, 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 the most important one is to maintain the relationships. And so for me, it's always about a, a question of balance. And I, I communicate a lot with the people I interview and I let them see their quotes, things like that, that maybe are a little bit further on their side than one normally would do in regular academic work. But I'm very aware of the limitations and my dependence on their willingness to talk to me and to be open about these issues. And none of it is, they're not exposing national security secrets or anything like that, but they're being open with me in a in an environment that where that is not considered a virtue. So I, um, I really base it on respect, res trying to balance my respect for the academic side of this which is is crucial, I think, for for all of the points that you've already pointed out in our in our discussion, but also being respectful um, and aware of both their dedication, as you said, but also the weaknesses of these systems. So it's a balance for me that I the reason I asked that was because I struggle with this all the time, every day, as I think about how to convey this information to the public or academic audiences or military audiences or to the community itself. So I wish I had 
the ultimate answer to this because it, it does bring me discomfort to have to balance that. But that also is a, I think it's very instructive and I think it's pretty, it's, it's a part of the wonder of studying intelligence. I think who, those of us who get to do this. And I do think it, it, it's a pretty incredible thing to get to do. I will say, I think, you know, I have a real appreciation for tenure. Um, you know, when the, in the dark moments where I said, you know, and, and found some things about, um, in particular insider threats and the Fort Hood terrorist attack, and some folks weren't too happy about that. It made me really appreciate the fact that from an incentive perspective, I always go back to incentives. My incentive is to speak the truth as I see it. And I won't get fired for doing that. No matter how much pressure may be brought to bear, no matter how what people are upset with what I say, I can say it and I don't have to worry about my job. And so I think that's really important for academics and it's important for people outside of the academy to understand how important that academic freedom of tenure is when you're dealing with very controversial subjects like intelligence. I think that's an excellent point. That really is. Um, to lighten our conversation a little bit, I'd like to touch on something that I think is fantastic that you study, which is spytainment. Because as we all know, um, higher aspirations aside, I got interested in studying intelligence because of the show Alias. <laughs> Alias changed my life. So could you please talk about your work on spytainment a little bit? So I don't want people to think that I'm a Debbie Downer and never like spy-themed entertainment. I actually like James Bond and Jason Bourne and Carrie Matheson as much as the next person. But what I did find, Jen, is that spy-themed entertainment has become adult education, and it has real negative consequences as well. And so this whole book started with a poll that I did of my UCLA students years ago when I was teaching at UCLA, where I asked where they got their information from and how often they watched spy-themed entertainment. And what I found in that survey was, number one, they didn't know anything about intelligence. That shouldn't be too surprising. But number two, they got a lot of their information wrong and they got it from spy-themed entertainment. And my students who said they watched spy-themed entertainment a lot were statistically more likely to support things like waterboarding or rendition or specific aggressive counterterrorism interrogation techniques, statistically significantly more likely to approve. Now that raises, of course, the question correlation or causation. Do people who approve of those techniques like watching Jack Bauer more than the average student? Maybe. So I did national polls after that to see whether what I saw in my classroom was a national phenomenon. And in fact, it was. So I found public opinion absolutely correlated with spy-themed entertainment, whether you believe the NSA or not, um, whether you supported certain interrogation techniques or not. And then I followed the breadcrumbs and found a surprising number of instances where spy-themed entertainment was being used by real policymakers to answer real policy questions. So in 2009, for example, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence asked Leon Panetta in his confirmation hearing to be CIA director about a ticking time bomb scenario and what he would do about it. And the press dubbed it the Jack Bauer exception. Now, in reality, ticking time bomb scenarios are not realistic. Experts have said for years they're not realistic. And this whole conversation around what additional authorities the nominee would use was based on plot lines from spy-themed entertainment. It's incredible. I think that one can't underestimate the impact that 24 has had on our national psyche. Um, I, I believe I read in your book that it actually impacted in education and training for military forces. It did. And one of the most interesting 
moments of the book that I found was uh, the dean of West Point at the time, General Finnegan, was so concerned that 24 was harming training of his cadets and gave them the idea that torture always worked and really hurting the education of his cadets that he went to Los Angeles and he visited the creative team behind the show 24 to ask them to produce episodes where torture backfired. And here's the amazing thing. It's a truth is stranger than fiction moment. When General Finnegan went on the set to talk with the team, he was wearing his uniform and everyone there thought he was an actor on the show, (laughs) not an actual general. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. You really can't. (laughs) For me, it was always the wigs and alias. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Before we wrap up, I just would, is there anything else you'd like to add to our, our discussion here? Anything else you'd like to say about your book or intelligence in general to our audience out there? Well, I would like to say, you know, I'm really excited about this book. And, and one of my favorite chapters we haven't talked about is the chapter on analysis. So thinking about how we think and why is analysis so much more difficult in intelligence than, say, predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl. So I do look at sports and the difference between the predictability of some things like intelligence and other things like sports contests. And I will say this, I think, you know, we need to think much more systematically about the human limitations we all have when we're trying to understand complex phenomenon. That intelligence can't be a crystal ball. Intelligence is a human endeavor. And when we think about things like cognitive bias, how we have confirmation bias, how we have mirror imaging. We think the other guy is going to behave how we would behave. It affects all of us in daily life and intelligence agencies have to confront that. So I find that really fascinating. And for those who really want to geek out on cognitive biases and how they've played out in intelligence history, I have a whole chapter devoted to that that I'm really excited about. And you touch upon counterintelligence too, don't you? I do touch on counterintelligence and how it's worked. And there's some great data that DOD has collected about the changing motives of traitors that have been caught over the past half century or so. So looking at that data more systematically and what does it tell us about counterintelligence and how does the changing technological landscape make counterintelligence so much harder? So I think I'm duty bound to ask you the question, what keeps you up at night? (laughs) Other than my own children, what keeps me up at night, just all, right? The threats are always more local than they are global uh, when it comes it's to parenting. <laughs> <laughs> what keeps me up at night is not any external threat. What keeps me up at night is us. The greatest national security threat to the United States is the United States. The polarization of our society, the lack of understanding about what is truth, uh, whether Joe Biden was legitimately elected president, the narrative of self-loathing, the divisions that we have. We have to come together as a country. And I think if we can, we can confront any external threat. But I'm really worried about the fragility of our democracy and the coarseness of our discourse. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us today. This has been a fantastic discussion. It's always a pleasure. Please join us again. We'd love to hear more more of your stories. Love to come back anytime. And I have your book sitting on my bookshelf right here at home. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this episode and all of our episodes. Send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you've subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us. 
so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcome you again. Until next time, from The War Room, I'm Genevieve Lester. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.